Cliff Nellis went to law school at the University of Chicago, and when he was there, he thought he would work in big law. But he had a change of heart on a cross-country bike ride, and today he leads the Lawndale Christian Legal Center. That's a Chicago group that provides free criminal defense representation for juveniles and young adults. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, Cliff will be telling me about his work and where he finds inspiration. Cliff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. The first thing I wanted to know is when you started your organization, where were you in your legal career? I know that you clerked, you did a little bit of practice. What were you doing when you decided to open the center? I graduated from the University of Chicago Law School in 2000, then I clerked for a federal judge until 2002. And after that, that's when I went on the uh, cross-country bicycle trip from Denver, Colorado to San Diego, California to Miami, Florida. I happened to cross a guard shack outside of a boys' correctional facility in Springer, New Mexico. Uh, That was during the first week of that three-month bicycle trip. And uh, I had a conversation where the the guard said over and over that the kids in his facility had no hope. They come in at 13, 14, 15, then go on and spend the rest of their life in adult prison. And of course, we know uh, the statistics. Once you're involved in the criminal justice system, you tend to get entangled in it, and it's very hard to break free from it. Uh, so from that moment forward, I, I was literally praying every day and journaling on this bicycle ride and saying, God, what can I do? Uh, to, what can I do? You know? And um, course, after that bicycle trip, I went through seminary school. And it was actually through seminary school that I met uh, the people of Lawndale Community Church, uh, a true community church uh, that I still attend to this day. They had a vision for a legal center uh, back in 1984. I was only nine years old then. uh, And so they often say they had to wait for me to grow up, get my law degree, and then move into the community, uh, which I did in 2009. And then we together through the church, started the Londo Christian Legal Center in 2010. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your community of Lawndale, which is a neighborhood in the city of Chicago? Yeah, we're on the west side of Chicago. It's a predominantly African-American community. You know, it's known predominantly for high rates of poverty, high rates of crime, high rates of, of violence. I think it's always important to note that it is a small number of people that are doing that. Uh, and I think it's also important to say that the young people that are caught up in it are typically growing up under circumstances where they lack most of the opportunities and basic resources that, you know, most everybody else kind of we take for granted housing, uh, mental health, you know, uh, having food literally and uh, power in your house and heat, et cetera. So they're growing up in a in a in a community where poverty is high, trauma is high, and they've they're learning to survive. Oftentimes, not through, well, through any means necessary, which would include crime. So, you know, it's a predominantly African American community with high rates of poverty, crime, and violence. But I, I don't think it's what defines the community. There's a lot of really good people here. I'm raising my children here and have wonderful neighbors, a wonderful church, and a lot of great people doing great work here. Okay. And can you walk me through how you specifically met the leaders at your church when you were in Divinity School? Because your Divinity School is up in, it's not even in the northern part of the city, it's in the northern part of the state, right? It's in Deerfield. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So it's like, were some of them, did you have someone from the church as a professor? Did they, They knew you were a lawyer. How did that meeting happen? 
Yeah, it was actually a seminary uh, mentor of mine. It was a pastor who was mentoring me, and he met the the founding pastor of Lawndale Community Church and bought his book and said, I think you'd really like this guy. He reminds me a lot of you. And I read the book. It's a book called Real Hope in Chicago. It was written in 1995. I read it in 2005. And the book was pretty impressive. In fact, I it was too good to be true, in my opinion. And I thought, well, it's the pastor writing a book about his own church. What's the author's name? Wayne Gordon. Okay, Wayne go Gordon. Everybody called him Coach. Yeah. So I came in. I had a, basically, I read this book. I thought, this is too good to be true. I need to see it for myself. Well, in 2005, everything had grown in the book another 10 years. So it's even better than what the book shared. There's the Lawndale Christian Health Center is one example that was started out of the same church as our legal center. And uh, I met the doctors who had moved in the community and started that in partnership with the church. And I was hooked. Uh, I thought that uh, what they were doing was really great work. And I, I, I believed in it. And uh, of course, I obviously I followed, followed suit, moved in the neighborhood in 2009. And we started the legal center. So someone who comes to your center, they might come for medical services, but also need legal services or vice versa, right? Well, the uh, not to confuse, the health center is completely different organization. Oh, okay. Uh, so right. they, yeah, they're a separate five hundred one c three. The church is a separate legal entity as well. We are a standalone legal center. We you know we definitely send kids over there if they need health care, their families, and vice versa. They would certainly send people to us if they need legal services. Well, that is pretty handy though, and not the experience of a lot of places, right? For sure, I think the fact that we started in such a grassroots manner through and with people of the community through a local church is what gave us somewhat of an instant credibility. Now, I know that your organization does a lot with trauma services. In addition to that, do you also do a fair amount of mental health services? And perhaps does the clinic offer that? And since if a client already has your trust and you think that they need mental health services, maybe they would listen and go and that could help everyone. Does that happen? Yeah, so our model of defense is what we call holistic community-based defense. So year to year, about 75 to 80% of our budget actually goes to social services. The, the, the number of staff that we have that our attorneys are actually our lowest number. We have about 13 of them, but we have about 70 staff total. And so we, from day one, the goal has always been not to just provide high quality criminal defense. We do that, and of course we do that unapologetically and ethically as required but passionately as as proponents of justice, particularly for young Black and Latino people who don't tend to fare quite as well in our criminal justice system, representation is critical. But equally critical, and from day one has always been equally critical, is addressing the social uh, lack of lack of social determinants of health, if you will, that are in our young people's lives. And so that basically when they come to us, we want to make sure that we're addressing the underlying root causes of crime and the social factors in our life that are that are partly contributing to how they got involved in criminal justice in the first place. Do you have a sense that they're more receptive to that because of how you guys present your services? For sure. There's no question. I would say that, you know, as partly a pastor and partly a lawyer here, uh, I would say the attorney-client relationship is a sacred relationship. Um, of course, there's legal protections around confidentiality. There's ethical duties to fight for the interests of the young person you're representing. And so in that environment, uh, trust is established. And I like to think of us as a, a family, um, very close to the young people that I represented, you know, 13 years ago now. I, I'm literally going to a 
one of our young people is getting engaged. It's a surprise. So hopefully this doesn't air. <laughs> He's getting engaged <laughs> on Thursday and I'm going to, we're going to be there to surprise his fiance. So I'm very close to the young people and their family are all of our staff are. We're, we're really a family. So with that trust comes the ability to, as you mentioned, you know, link them to other services that maybe they weren't necessarily motivated to engage in previously. And maybe you didn't even re realize it was something they needed uh, until we were able to start to work with them and and start to, you know, help them see some things that perhaps uh, could be addressed through some supportive services. And do you find with your work, I I'm wondering if for work of pastors and lawyers representing consumers, a real key piece is figuring out how to get clients to hear or, or parishioners to hear maybe what they don't want to and take it in. Do you agree? I mean, sometimes for sure. You know, I mean, I'm a father and sometimes, you know, you've got to share something with your child they don't want to hear. But that's a skill. That, that, yeah, that's that's with adults. That's a skill. Well, and, and really the context in which somebody can hear that is love, right? I mean, it's relationship. If you don't know somebody and they come in and they try to tell you, you got to change your life, Quite frankly, in the wrong context, you're just a jerk. If you have a relationship, then you can make that you can you can speak into somebody's life because they're open to hearing from you. And I and I, I do think it's important to share that, you know, for myself, and I, I would venture to say actually most of our staff, even those from the community, the learning goes both ways. Our young people, you know, I mean, they truly are navigating circumstances that anybody of any age would have a very difficult time navigating and making choices that are quite oftentimes very reasonable, given the circumstances and the, and the opportunities they have. So I think for us, listening and understanding our young people, where they're coming from, what's happening in their life, and understanding the decisions that they're making is critical before we, particularly before you speak into it. Do you find with a lot of your uh, legal clients, do you know them or maybe their family before they come to you with an issue? Yeah, oftentimes because, you know, I've lived in the neighborhood now for almost 14 years. I'm raising my children here. I go to church locally here. You know, of course, I see people at our local restaurants uh, back when I didn't have washer and dryer at the local laundromat. So, you know, there's a there's a community here. And with that, I've certainly, you know, quote unquote, gotten clients. I don't usually refer them to that. But, you know, rocks have been thrown at my window when I was in a, a second floor apartment, waking me up in the middle of the night, letting me know his son was arrested. And and uh, we were in bond court the next morning uh, with their family and a whole bunch of people from our church, for example, uh, my neighbors, people across the alley. So for sure, uh, sometimes we we have young people we serve because we're already connected to their families, their friends. And now that we've been here for 14 years, I would say that's very common. It's oftentimes, you know, family members or friends or young people we've represented that are sending other people our way. So as you say, you've been doing this for 14 years and it seems to be going well for you. Um, and you, so you're white and you grew up in a majority white suburb. What can you say about working with people who have a different background than you in a way that's not patronizing and learning how to listen and communicate with folks in a meaningful way? Because I think sometimes that does show up as an issue in some legal services groups in every area of life it's an yes issue. for sure and yes it, i think it's critical i think two things one i would say if particularly as a white person growing up in a suburb who've now moved into a black community if i have not been transformed and changed uh, in the way i speak and the way i think and the way i communicate 
over the last 14 years, that's a big problem. That would be a huge problem, right? I I can honestly say, and I think most people who know me would say this, I've, I'm a completely different person today on multiple fronts. And so to be open to those that were quote unquote serving, I think is part of it. But the other piece too is core to our values, um, which is being in the community, with the community, for the community, by the community. So we don't see ourselves necessarily as a nonprofit. We are, of course we are, but we're part of the fabric of the community. And when you see yourself that way and you build your operations out that way, then everything is done with community. It's not over community. It's not necessarily for the community unless it's by the community. And so everything we do here, we try to make sure that we're doing it in partnership with in all things. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you some questions about how your center has grown over these 14 years. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Cliff Nellis. He's the executive director of Chicago's Lawndale Christian Legal Center. So, Cliff, you guys have done some really great fundraising recently. Can you tell me a bit about how the center has grown and how you go about fundraising? What was your budget when it opened? Well, our first year, our budget was thirty thousand uh, dollars. Gives you that we were, and it was just myself. And then uh, now we are about. I think we're going to be about a five point five million dollar budget in closing on uh, twenty twenty two. Uh, expect to be around a six million dollar budget this year. Uh, our fundraising. I mean, we we have a lot of different funding sources, but since of course I'm speaking with the American Bar Association, I'll just share that. Uh, we have a lot of law firms that actually sponsor us. We hold quarterly events. 
We have a Wake Up Justice breakfast event coming up on June uh, June 16th, which is the in honor of Juneteenth. Uh, we have our annual gala, and we also hold fellowships. Um, so Equal Justice Works fellowships, for example, law firms sponsor those fellows and also sponsor our events. We've worked with Kirkland uh, and Ellis, Winston Strong, Jenner Block, Arndt Frock Schiff, Mayor Brown, Scadden. We're, we're doing the Troutman Peppers doing some pro bono work for us. So we, we fundraise from law firms, corporations, individual, small and large donors to foundations to government funding. It's about a third, third and a third split on government foundation and then individual donors. So the first year when you had $30,000, was that all that you earned that year? Or did you have other jobs or how <laughs> how did that work? Sorry to ask these personal questions. No, it's OK. You know, the founders got to put some skin in the game. So, yes, that was actually my first year salary. Wow. So how did you, did you, did you have law school loans? I was fortunate not to have law school loans. I had semi school loans, uh, but Ah. I did not have law school loans. Yeah. So were you able just to defer that year? And did you find affordable housing? Were you married then? I was not, did not Ah. have children. That definitely (laughs) allowed that to happen. I also, I lived for six months in a, actually a halfway house as part of a seminary placement. Uh, So I wasn't paying rent, but I was living with 20 uh, men who had returned to the community from prison. And we had a one room with uh, 20 bunk beds. And and so I lived there for half the year. Then I lived in an apartment above that uh, through the church. The other half. So, I mean, you know, there was other ways of saving money. But yes, it was thin. Was that in Lawndale? Yes. Called the my house. Was that kind of like, a, I don't know if work study is the right word, but you didn't have to pay rent, I'm guessing, because you were there to help. Basically. Correct. Yeah, it was a, actually it was a seminary placement as a, you know, to get your seminary degree, you have to have a full time pastoral placement. My seminary school made an exception, allowed me to be a lawyer during my seminary placement. And during my seminary placement, I lived in that Nehemiah house uh, while I was representing people in criminal courts and also working over at Caribbean Green Legal Aid. We had talked about starting the Westside branch of CGLA, but because we were really doing something unique, we decided uh, in, I mean, it was a mutual agreement with CGL that we decided to start the Londo Christian Legal Center and focus specifically and exclusively on holistic defense for young people. When you talked to some of your classmates from Chicago and told them what you were up to and where were you living, what kind of responses did you get? Yeah, I've had actually great support from my alma mater, specifically my graduating class. Uh, every year up through COVID, we took a little break, but they always host a luncheon for me and get the word out through the classmates. Uh, so uh, I've had really, I would say overall, really good uh, support and yeah, support from the law school and my classmates. And I was curious, you mentioned the law firms. Do, in terms of with the direct legal representation, do you use pro bono attorneys for that too? Or is it mostly uh, your staff attorneys that do that? Mostly staff attorneys for one re- we, for but to be clear, we have pro bono attorneys from these big firms and other firms that that do do pro bono work for us. But you have to be a trial lawyer and you have to be somewhat seasoned. You know, we have for 14 years been predominantly, well, almost exclusively doing felony work. And with young people charged with felonies, sometimes in adult court, uh, of course, all of our 18 and 24 year olds are in adult court, juvenile 17 and under, they're in juvenile court. But most of the time, the consequences are pretty severe, right? You're looking at a lifelong felony record. You're looking at jail time, sometimes upwards of 30 plus, you know, 21 to 45, 6 to 30, you know, even on the low end, it's 1 to 3. 
but that's a big disruption for a young person. So it's not every, it's not your average lawyer who one can take a case all the way to trial. So once you file your appearance, you're on it all the way until trial, unless the judge allows you to withdraw it. So typically we work with a partner at these firms uh, with maybe a younger associate that they're mentoring to get them exposure and in, into court. And we always stay on the case, even when we're uh, working with a pro bono partner, because of course we have all the social services that we're offering in partnership with. Sometimes we usually have a lawyer that's still in contact for that lawyer. So they're working together, but we want to make sure that when we work with a pro bono law firm that we're addressing the mental health, housing, employment, education, that we're really restoring our young people as a whole, because we see ourselves as a violence prevention agency, right? This is really core to public safety. If we can walk a young person through the criminal justice system away from it, never to return to it again, put them on a path towards school and employment, then we're we're preventing violence and crime and poverty. Now, do you still represent clients or are you more on the management side now? I am just an executive director these days. I try to take one case a year to keep my, you know, ear to the ground and my skills sharpened, but uh, that's it. Do you think that your work with the center, it maybe has changed how you represent folks and go to court and try cases and had you not taken this path? I mean, one, I'm sure you could certainly get more court time on this path than if you'd gone to a big firm. But I wonder if there's other things as well in terms of how you deal with judges, maybe read judges, and the same would be true for juries. Yeah, for sure. There's no question. When you work holistically in a community-based setting where trust levels are high, you learn a lot about your young person, their family, and their community in ways that are very important as a lawyer to communicate to the state's attorney's office and the, and the judge on the case. Most of cases plea, right? You're looking at 94 to 97% of cases across the nation result in a plea agreement in criminal court. And that means that if you're going to be an effective lawyer and with Sixth Amendment constitutional right, effective assistance of counsel, then you better be really good at mitigation. One of your skill sets better be to be able to effectively communicate who your client is in a compassionate way that shows you understand and can help the state and the judge understand what's actually happening here and what's a better outcome. How do we address those realities, those stressors, uh, instead of relying on the same old thing of felony records and, and prison time, uh, which does nothing but actually make, it literally does nothing to the environment or their social situation and actually adds stress because now you've gone into a traumatic setting, into a jail setting. You're not furthering your education. You're not furthering your, your you know, career path. And you also have a felony record that makes all of that even more difficult. So you took a bad situation, made it worse, right? So how do you go about convincing the court of what you just said? What's your secret? Well, I mean, you know, I, I always believe in preparation. You got to work hard, right? Uh -huh. You've got to you got to work a case. I'm a big believer. You've got to personally visit every crime scene. You've got to take photographs. You've got to interview witnesses. You've got to get a feel for everybody involved in what could be a trial. And, you know, I, we provide, I would say, the best defense you can find in Chicago. Unapologetically, I think we're very good lawyers. And I think we have an advantage because when you work in a geographical area, you know, I'm reading an arrest report. I know what that intersection is. I already been there. I, you know, chances are I know somebody around there. I can start talking to people. So, you know, prep, 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 you got to prep. But on the same side, even for plea negotiations, 
you know, in, in the criminal courts, particularly, it's usually done at the bench on a sticky note. State's attorney gives an offer, and that's the beginning and the end of that negotiation. That's a very bad practice that results in a lot of harm to local communities, particularly Black and Latino communities. It's like taking the first bad offer off a used car lot. Are you going to walk on a used car lot and talk to the guy and they're going to give you an offer? And you're going to go, okay, here you go. Here's my money. Absolutely not. you got to negotiate. And that's where effective mitigation comes into play. That's where we have to make sure we're telling the state's attorney, the judiciary and others involved in the criminal justice system, the story of our young people and a different path and a solution. And I really proud to say that, you know, we have really high, I would say high quality leaders here in Cook County. We're fortunate to have Chief Judge Timothy Evans, who partnered with us to start the first restorative justice community court in the country right here in North Lawndale. That is literally founded on the things I just said that we sit in circle with our young people to understand what's going on in their life, truly hear and learn and listen. And then we come together to restore and repair harm that's been done to the community, to any victim, then also restore and repair harm that's been done to the young person, uh, maybe not through this criminal act, but through growing up in a, in a tough spot. And it, the question becomes, how does everybody become whole in this circle? And that's when everybody, even the defendant and the victim and the affected community members, everybody gets to voice, this is what we need to become whole. There's no space for that in the traditional criminal justice system. But in Cook County, we have short of justice community court right here in North Lawndale. And there's another one in Englewood and Avondale. For your work, what are you seeing in terms, are you seeing arrest patterns for young people in Chicago? And if so, what, what? Yeah, some have stayed the same, some are different. Carjackings is probably the one that's up the most. The ones that are the same are really the ones that are all rooted in very much the similar things of of poverty and lack of opportunity, property crimes. Guns are very prevalent. That's probably one of our highest number of cases. Gun arrests, drugs, property, and then violent crime. But carjackings are up. I think that all of them have some common denominators, right? All of them have young people who have been surviving on the streets from a very young age. I'm talking eight, nine, 10 years old. Some of our young people are hustling out there. Hustling in that age doesn't necessarily mean anything criminal. It could mean collecting bottle cans, could be, you know, at the local grocery store asking for a dollar to take your groceries to the car. It could be stealing bicycles. But the common denominator is, I'm sure you're familiar with food deserts and recreation deserts and you know, when you grow up in an area where there's a lack of opportunity. And then on top of that, you do have our young people have been exposed to inordinate amounts of violence. And, and that shapes a young person. Uh, their sense of safety has been fractured daily from a very young age. And that's not an exaggeration, daily from a very young age. Our young people will de recline their seat in, in the car so that their head is aligned with the the frame of the door between the front window and the back window so that people don't see in. For bullets, they want to get a spot where they, it would be harder to get. Yeah, they just it's it's the idea of just not being seen as I go about uh, because I could be somebody might mistake me for somebody. Somebody might assume that because I grew up on this block, I'm a part of this group. I might actually be a part of that group. But either way, our young people are are navigating that literally every day in the in choosing places they walk or don't walk, how they walk, where they walk, when they don't walk. Uh, and, and quite frankly, most of them don't venture too far beyond their block because of that. I want to go back to what you were saying about the carjacking. I know 
there's certainly been a lot of news stories about carjacking in Chicago, and not to uh, take away anything from the victims, but it's like there's been a lot of news stories about carjackings in Chicago. So for the young people who get picked up, for the young people who are involved in carjackings, what have you seen that works as a deterrent for them going forward? Because I think that's something that everybody in the city, regardless of where you live and how much money you make, you're aware of that and perhaps concerned to that, concerned about that in varying degrees. What are you seeing? It's, you know, kind of the same thing that we do for all of our young people. You know, once you start to understand what's happening in their life, what's going on at home, on the block, in the community, you start to see gaps in what any child would need growing to grow up healthy uh, and on a path towards, you know, educational and employment uh, attainment, if you will. And so, you know, when you start to address post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, right? When you start to address the trauma they've experienced, when you when you address any kind of abuse or neglect that they may be experiencing at home, when you address the fact that they, they've had no food in the fridge, no lights in the house, no heat, uh, when you start to address housing, workforce development, school-based, getting kids back into school, obtaining uh, just a GED or a high school diploma, uh, that puts them on a path and starts to expose them to opportunities and, quite frankly, a vision or a, for their future that they didn't previously believe was possible. And to some degree, you know, it might, you know, was it possible? Sure, of course, we're connecting them to those resources, but they weren't connected before. And so it takes it takes exposing them to other pathways and opportunities in life. And once they see it, they can believe it. But if the, if you don't, if they're not exposed, then they're going to know only what they see before them. And so I think for those young people who are stealing cars, it's just recognizing that there's other things to do with your time that are more productive and don't harm other people and actually lead down a path that they would prefer to go down if they believed it existed. And once you show them that, then, you know, more often than not, they stop doing those things to, to go down a path that they never even thought was possible. Well, if you don't mind sharing this with me, do you have some clients, like maybe someone was picked up for carjacking in July of 2022 and in March of 2023, they're on a totally different life outlook now? Yeah, for sure. I could introduce you to many of young men who who were on that path and doing those things are now in school, working, have their family, they're uh, raising their children, married some of them married, some of them not, but all of them are leading a law-abiding life and, and also just a, somebody I look up to and respect. And you have some that just don't get the message? Yeah, of course. You know, I would, well, I wouldn't even say it that way. I would say they haven't gotten it yet. You know, one of the things that I really appreciated having lived in the Nehemiah house before starting this is I was living with 17 guys who all had rap sheets, really long rap sheets. And if you knew them that day, you would never even know it. You would look at them and be like, Wow, like, wow, you actually look, you saw their rap sheet and you knew them, you'd think that's a different person. And so I often think, and quite frankly, I could, several of our pastors at our church had rap sheets, right? And so I, I oftentimes look at them and I just think about them. Like, you know what? We knew that we're working with this young guy when Pastor Joe was in that thing, but this young guy could be Pastor Joe. And that's often, I mean, literally, I pretty think about that quite often. And if you fall off the wagon, a lot of times you can get back on. Absolutely. Progress is never linear. Here's to new beginnings. Yep. Yep. 
All right. Well, that's everything I wanted to ask you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. 